You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. We all have things to learn from each other. What we might seem as a tumultuous time in life, there's always a tumultuous time in history when you go back and, and learn. And so for me, life is full of attributes and events which can spread, and it's your choice to choose what to share. Happiness and laughter can extinguish anger and business every day. So it's up to you to choose which you would like to share with yourself and with others. That is for me, because I'm creating my own quotes nowadays. You should too, or give it a try. You might enjoy doing it for yourself. And you are listening to episode number 226. And my guest today is the amazing Dina Michelle. Dina arrived here in Jackson Hole with the intention of learning how to ski. And wow, did she ever learn how to ski. And along with a list of other accomplishments, which you'll learn about today, which just seem hard to fathom for a mortal like myself. And trust me, you're going to love hearing Dina's story today. Because Dina faces each life event with determination. And as Dina has more experiences in life, she's learned how to view each experience through a different lens. Dina, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's a super honor to have somebody of your journalistic stature to be on the show and take some time to talk to a little peon like me. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. And I've known you for several years, many years, a few decades now, I think. Yes. And I always enjoy having people on the show share their background and where they grew up. And so please start off, Dina, where did you grow up and how did you land here in Jackson, of all places? Um, well, I grew up, my story is not unique. I grew up on the East Coast in Maryland, outside of Washington, D.C. And after I graduated from college in Chicago, Northwestern University, um, I wanted to learn how to ski. And I liked the idea of living in the least populated state in the country. And I knew Harrison Ford lived in Jackson. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> That was 1997. Well, you're the first person to say that they wanted to move to the least populated state in the country and to the town where Harrison Ford lives. So that is unique. <laughs> yeah. You've learned to ski, haven't you? I mean, now that I've, I mean, it didn't take, like, I've been here for 25 years now, but within the first year of being here, I realized that, like, even if I think I'm an amazing skier, I know better than to call myself a great skier in this place the skiers here are just absolutely amazing and beautiful i can get down everything i have fun getting down most things and i enjoy it so i would i'm a capable skier 
And I would say it's still a work in progress. And for people who are listening, that statement isn't just about skiing in the boundaries of Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. You are also talking about skiing in the backcountry as well and are quite accomplished with some of the stuff that you've done out there. Well, Snow King is probably the place that I ski more than anywhere else because I live super close to it and mm -hmm. I skin up it several times a week. But aside from snow, like most of my days are in the backcountry. I really like skinning is as close as I can get to meditation. So oh, I love cool. I love that part of the I love that part of the sport. And we're going to get off the skiing track here because there's a lot more to know for you to share about who you are and what the past 25 years have, has been like for you. And how do you occupy your day? And did you do that 25 years ago? Um, like a, a work day or a play day? Yeah. Yeah, um, a work day. A work Let's day. Get into that. Okay. So I, I moved here. I was the worst ski bum in the world because I moved here with a job as a paralegal. Working in the law office that I had previously researched was Harrison Ford's local attorney's. There might have been some mild stalking going on those early years. So I, when I moved here, I had no thoughts of be, becoming a writer. I didn't take a single writing class in college. I studied um, math and economics and statistics. But then I realized that I did not want to go to law school and I really love Jackson. So I kind of went hunting for something that I enjoyed doing and stumbled upon writing with, with that. And so that was probably in like the late 90s. And then I um, did an internship with Outside Magazine, which definitely like that kind of that was sort of the kickstart to my career. And nowadays I do freelance for a variety of things and I edit some local magazines. And like a work day today is super fun for me because every day is different. And I actually I love multitasking. And like, so, so far today I have, well, first thing I did was I got my teeth cleaned. Then I went to spend a bagel shop, <laughs> got a bagel and espresso. But then I came home and I'm, you know, interviewed someone at the National Museum of Wildlife Art for one story. I interviewed a local gallerist for another story. I set up a couple of interviews for next week, wrote a story about Western visions at the Wildlife Museum. So like, that's that's been my work day. It's just like a bunch of little things that I do to kind of fill the day. And very often in it, I'll take a break to go skin up Snow King. Now, have you ever been up Snow King more than once in one day skinning? Yes. I feel like you're asking me a leading <laughs> question here. <laughs> well, um, if I, re I, I recall, there was something that you did, but I don't, I don't want to... <laughs> jump to it jump to a conclusion or misspeak yes there i did once go up snow king skinned up it 10 times in one day and that was just a prelude to the month after that and we're this is years ago at this point it's got to be 2009 2010 2008 i'm gonna go 2009 the month after that, that works. excuse me I said that works. Okay. Month after that, I competed in a race, the 24 Hours of Sunlight, which was an uphill race. It's down valley from Aspen at Sunlight Basin. And there, it has a very similar elevation profile to Snow King. Each lap was about 1,500 vertical feet. And I did 24 laps. And my goal was to set the world record at the time for the most 
most vertical feet skied uphill by a woman in 24 hours. And I did. You are, I think, the only person I've ever spoken to that I'm aware of who has set a world record. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm very good at um, sports that require stubbornness and are races of attrition. Now, are you good at other things that require stubbornness? Um, well, I mean, I think like my first year trying to be a writer, I sent out 1,483 pitches to different magazines and newspapers and only one, I only got one yes. So I would say that is actually probably much more, that required a lot more stubbornness than skinning for 24 hours. But it shows to get your foot in the door to do something. It just goes back to like Michael Jordan's. Of, I mean, everybody talks about the shots that he made, that he made, but nobody talks about the shots that he missed or right. you know, the game winning shots that he missed. People only remember what was done. Yeah. For awards. Yeah. And so it's definitely. Um, so you're an overnight success like everybody, like Harrison Ford, right? Exactly. Exactly like Harrison Ford. <laughs> yes. And like Schifrin. I mean, we're going to have to tie the show back to Harrison Ford in so many <laughs> ways. Sweet. Maybe he'll listen to it. <laughs> Maybe. I would never know if he did. Yeah. I've, and, I, it's been a while since I've, I've stalked him. He's probably had a relief and. To know that he's not being stalked. I mean, there's probably somebody else stalked. I mean, Possibly. He is Han Solo. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> no, for me, I was actually more and... Indiana Jones. Like, was, Oh, okay. Yeah, I was more of a Luke Skywalker girl, but he had me with Indy. Did you ever walk around with a whip? No comment. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and so you put in 1,400 pitches. You got a yes from somebody. Was that Outside Magazine? Um, no, it was not. It was um, Palm Air Navigator, the in-flight magazine for a hyper-regional airline that like flew to places like in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, maybe. And the pay for that story, so this was like 1999 that I sent all of these out. And the pay for that story, it was a feature story about whitewater rafting on the Gauley River, didn't even, wasn't even enough to cover everything I had spent on postage because back then like email was still, Oh, it's a fad. It's like, you know, not mm. going to happen. Make sure you send real mail to editors with story ideas. And now that I'm going to call you a writer because I've seen a lot of what you've written and written, read what you've written. Would you call yourself a writer? I think anyone who, who writes is a writer. Whether they get paid for it or or not, I'm I'm fortunate that through my stubbornness and being in the right place in the right time, I managed to make a living at it too. And it's even more than just making a living at it, Dina. You have traveled the world doing it as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's been. I still pinch myself every day. Like that's crazy. What is a location? and a story that you would like to share today that you would recall that was maybe life-changing or sharing the story that maybe people haven't read would not really know about. They're like, gosh, that's just not believable. I'm, I just can't believe that of what you learned for traveling around the world. So I've got two. For me, there's kind of, there's very, there's actually many types of travel writing, but the 
kind of two types of travel writing I do about like going to somewhere cool and doing something cool. And then there are ones that I kind of call more like first person narratives that are more about like something on that trip. There's some universal thread that I either experience on that trip or revelation that I have or something that I learn about myself that I think other people can identify with. And those are my favorite stories to write. They're harder to get published and they're, I mean, it's not like you can plan to to have a moment of, you know, clarity or introspection on a trip. So it's like, I can't predict those stories in advance. But so one a story that falls into the first category that was kind of just like an absolutely amazing adventure. And I was like, holy shit, I'm doing this for work was tracking snow leopards in Ladakh, India. And this was actually my last big trip before COVID. And it was cool for multiple reasons. Like, so in kindergarten, before I knew such things were not possible, I wanted to grow up to be a snow leopard. I thought they were, so they were. Oh, okay. Of course. They could jump really far. They looked super cool. I love that giant, thick tail. But then my kindergarten teacher killed that dream when you can grow up to be many things, but a different species is not one of them. And then I kind of just like had all of these. And then, okay, so I moved on from wanting to be a snow leopard to wanting to be a veterinarian. And then I like, I'm older and I like volunteered at a wildlife sanctuary. And it's like, I'm actually pretty afraid of animals. So veterinarian isn't good. And then I also discovered I'm allergic to a lot of animals. So it kind of like felt full circle, like, okay, I didn't get to be a snow leopard. I didn't get to like be a veterinarian to snow leopards, but okay, here now in my 40s, I'm seeing them in the wild and writing about them. So it was kind of just like one of those things like where you never know where life is gonna gonna take you. And it was just kind of cool. I felt that it did come maybe not quite full circle, but it like it was kind of fun to tie back to a five-year-old Dina. That, uh, that is cool. And then a story that it was actually the last story that I did for the Washington Post before their travel section morphed into something that doesn't publish first-person narrative stories anymore. And it was about canyoneering in um, San Rafael Swell. And my husband and I had met some friends there. And the first day, I like canyoneering, I mean, it combines so many things that, that I love. It's like rock climbing and scrambling and swimming. But it's also really, really cold. It can be really, really cold when you're swimming through, you know, water in these tiny canyons that most days don't get, the canyons don't get any light. But so we we went on a canyoneering adventure with our friends, like day one of a three or four day trip. And I, like, I, despite having multiple layers on, wetsuit on, like three hours or so into like when we're actually in the canyon, I was so cold. I started worrying about whether or not my friends were going to have to rescue me. Like that I wouldn't be able to get myself out. I mean, I was shivering. I could barely, like we were repelling and everything. And I was just, it was really hard for me to manage the the rope with my hands. And I mean, this is kind of like part of my stubbornness where it's like, I know through, I have some health issues and a multiple sclerosis was what was the problem this day. And one of my symptoms of that is that like my body has problems sometimes regulating its temperature. Like once I get cold, sometimes my body, like I cannot warm up even if I start doing like jumping jacks or put on, you know, amazing amounts of clothing. And like that was something that I knew going into this canyoneering thing. And I thought that I had prepared for it, but hadn't. 
And like my takeaway was that I have limits. I mean, like, obviously everyone has limits and that sounds super obvious, but I think because of my stubbornness, I don't like acknowledging them. And this is, Mm. this was like an instance where I was like, wow, I could have like really put my friends in danger by, by doing this. And so the next couple of days I sent them off on adventures and I did non canyoneering things and it was great. It was a trip where I was like sad and happy and a little proud of myself. And I kind of like, oh, wow, you're being an adult here. I will come up with many different plans so that I can have my cake and eat it too. And this is one, this was a instance where, you know, no, like I mean, I'm, I could I could get a dry suit and can you near in a dry suit with like a down suit underneath it. But uh, until I decide to do that, like I think canyoneering might not be the sport for me. And it's for someone who's always, I mean, persevered and, you know, bumped her head up against the wall until she's broken through. Like that was a bit a big lesson that I learned. And then so I wrote about that. And then also in this beautiful landscape of San Rafael as well. And did you share with your friends and husband at a certain point what you were going through to like, stay warm? Oh, they they could they could see like and my husband had like okay. given he had given me his his codes. And like, I mean, he he has seen he had seen that happen to me before. So kind of knew. I mean, it wasn't like I had hid that this is something that could happen to me, but I hadn't like thought it all the way out to the end. Like, okay, mm-hmm. we hadn't had a conversation. Like, if this happens, this is what we can do. But they were definitely okay. aware of what was going on in the moment. I'm gonna have to look up that article because I've I'm not familiar with that canyon, and I bet it is magnificent. It, I mean, just the San Rafael swell is, I mean, amazing. And so, like, after I, you know, we did that canyon that first day, and then like. The, the next two days, there's some there are lots of old mining roads there. So there's old roads that wind everywhere. But it's kind of like a landscape that if you're comfortable navigating and have maps with you, you can kind of just take off and like be like see a feature in the distance and be like, I want to see if I can get there and what it's like. And it's like that way. And then it's like you do that for eight hours in a day and you don't see anyone else. And like that's just really cool to me so even without the slot canyons i mean i think the swell is absolutely gorgeous what a magnificent place to be where for an entire day that you would not see anybody else and to be comfortable and happy about that situation not er not everybody can do that well and i i mean when i moved here i was terrified of being like i mean i wouldn't hike i would hike like 100 meters past the patrol cabin up death canyon and then like where you kind of get Mm -hmm. into where there's thicker thicker trees and then i would i was fine hiking to there by myself but then i would turn around because i was sure bears lived in the thick trees and were just waiting to eat me i mean like i had a full full like year of hiking like that so i think it's something (laughs) that i've just become more comfortable with the longer i've been here and definitely now seek it out. And I mean, like last fall, like my husband and I, we had two days in the Tetons where for 10 of the 12 or 14 hours that we were out, like we're in Grand Teton National Park and didn't see anyone else. It's almost now I look at where maps and I look at the trails and then I'm like, okay, what isn't 
you know, what looks like you could get to that trails don't go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some remarkable places back there. And when you get off the, the trailhead for a few miles, you really don't see, see people. Yeah. It's there was like remarkable. a basin up at the back of Death Canyon that like I had flown, flown over a cut for like, or like landing at the airport, I'd been noticing it for years. And I was like, that looks really mm-hmm. intriguing. I wonder if you can get there. And like last September, we figured out how to get there. And like, who knew that you could, like, you can connect Death Canyon to Alaska Basin directly. And that was just kind of fun figuring that, figuring that out. And then that kind of got me thinking, like, why are the trails in the national park where they are? Like, why... Why didn't they build a trail into Alaska Basin from Death? It was just then it sent me on like a there's the early days of trail trail construction in the park are super interesting. Did you research that? I looked into it a little bit. Like, I mean, what's now kind of the the crest trail was, I think, the Skyline Trail or Skyrim Trail, partially built by the CCC. Yeah, Yeah, it's fascinating. I I do want to go back to the part about when you were in India. And the snow leopards. Yeah. Curious question. Do many people see snow leopards? No, they are known to be, I mean, they're they're called ghost cats because they're so elusive. And I mean, not only they're so elusive that, I mean, the estimate of their population worldwide, I mean, varies from 4,000 to 7,000. That's a pretty big variance. And did you actually see some? On the very last day, yes. Um, And actually, by the time I had seen them, like, I had kind of already started to wrap my head around the fact that I wouldn't see any and was fine with it because the experience of kind of tracking them was, I mean, super interesting. And, like, the landscape that they live in I mean, for me, it was just like, I mean, you're just scrambling over rocks all over the place. So we were super fortunate to to see them. But for me, it, like the best days of the trip were actually the days where I was out with the tracker. And he, while they're hard to see, they actually leave signs of where, I mean, they, they cover a lot of ground and they leave behind a fair amount of signs if you know what you're looking for to tell that like, hey, a snow leopard was here. And I mean, sometimes that's as obvious as a footprint in the snow. But then other times it's like, I mean, a tiny, like they had peed somewhere and there was like a scuff mark or Hmm. something. And it was like, cool learning from the tracker. Because it's most of my early years in the area were like, I was in the mountains, but it was all about traveling fast through them. And covering a lot of ground, so not like stopping to look at the details. It was more like, how fast can I run the crest trail? Versus, oh my God, the flowers in Alaska Basin are really pretty right now. I'm going to stop and enjoy them. So like going with the the tracker, we would cover no no ground, but I would see so much. And that was just mm. very, very different for me. And I like that. That's beautiful. We can certainly see a lot more when we slow down. Yeah. Sure. Dino, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we're going to come back because there's a lot more that you have to share with us. Great. Thanks. 
Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Dina, welcome back to the Jackson Hole Connection. You are the one person that I have interviewed, and I think I know that I set a world record. You're the only person that I know who has seen a snow leopard, and you have had some remarkable life experiences throughout life and challenges. And in the first part of the show, you mentioned that you have MS. And you are also a cancer survivor as well, correct? Yes. And would you share with us, which one did you learn about first? And how did this stubbornness help you continue with what you love so much of being in the outdoors and adventure to continue what you do? I would actually say that I mean, my stubbornness, I talked earlier about, you know, skinning up Snow King 10 times and then my, how I got into writing. But it's actually, I think with my illnesses, that stubbornness has mm. helped me the most. Although I'm sure there are some people who might say it's, you know, hasn't been completely helpful because sometimes stubbornness Stubbornness is not necessarily a, a good thing. But so I was diagnosed with MS first. I was 30 years old. I did not know much about MS when I was diagnosed. And I immediately went to the internet. And one of the first things I read was that within 10 years, 50% of people who have MS are in a wheelchair. And if you're not in a wheelchair, you're likely using a walker. And at 30 years old, as an outdoor athlete in Jackson Hole, that completely crushed me. But rather than thinking about my time in the, you know, okay, I'm going to be in a wheelchair. Or actually, I mean, I guess it's because I thought I could be in a wheelchair in 10 years. I mean, like my motto, I started was like, I have to do everything that I can while I can. And that whenever I would do adventure races during that time, the team name was always you can sleep when you're dead. Which oh gosh, which now I'm like a dedicated and highly committed napper, <clears throat> and I'm like, oh, sleep is the best thing ever. I you know look back at my 30 year old self and it's like, no, sleep is the most amazing thing. There were just so many places I hadn't seen and things that I wanted to to do, and I was like, okay, I've got to do and see them all as soon as I can while I still can. Um, so that was definitely stubbornness. And then kind of as as I sort of learned to live with MS, I'm quite fortunate that I have a fairly mild case of it, but also had neurologists tell me that based on the scans of my brain and spinal cord, where so like MS causes lesions in your brain and then your neurons can't communicate with each other anymore. But because I am constantly so physically active, I had a neurologist tell me that I'm as symptom-free physically as I am because I am so active. And I'm like, I'm not 
allowing my body to like if I'm losing a connection because I'm running or hiking or skiing every single day, like I'm making my body find a new pathway as soon as the old one is lost. So that's kind of like reinforcement for my for my stubbornness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then I think so then I was diagnosed with cancer in 2013. Actually my the nine year anniversary of my diagnosis was December 19. And I think during the cancer, it was breast cancer. I had stage three breast cancer. And during the treatment for that, which for me included chemotherapy, a double mastectomy and radiation, my stubbornness was maybe not the best for my physical body. Emotionally, I, I needed to keep getting in the outdoors and traveling to remind myself of who I was. But it's possible that like not allowing my body to to rest while it was going through chemotherapy perhaps wasn't the best thing. Like I might have lingering effects from that now. Now, how come because you didn't allow your body to rest? Are you having lingering effects? How did that impact your body? So this is it's I feel like I've always defined myself as an athlete. And that's always been how I hang out. You know, that's how I spend time with friends and with the landscape. And since, you know, I've been declared cancer free, like I have, my body has not, and I understand that, you know, I've been aging over this time as well, of course, but my body just, there's just something that no doctor can tell me what it is. And I've gone and see, seen doctors everywhere, which is my body doesn't have the oomph and energy that it once did. And with your travels and being an elite athlete, I consider you an elite athlete. In my book, you're an elite athlete. Are there natural, homeopathic, meditative practices that you put into your life which have helped you? So can I address the elite athlete thing first? Because I think that's sure. actually, that's where most of my problems actually stem from. The fact that I okay. have this reputation and in the past personally felt that, you know, I, I was fast and could keep up with, with people and did some, you know, had some athletic accomplishments. And then now I'm, you know, going on a run or a bike ride or a hike and it's like people blow past me. I mean, I'm, I can still go on 100-mile rides. It just takes me eight hours now instead of five, and it hurts more than it does. I think it's, I mean, I'm trying to work on shifting my mentality, like, just to be grateful that I can still do these things and not care about how fast I'm doing them. So I've been doing kind of more mental work than I have. I mean, after, you know, seeing three or four doctors, and when they hear that I'm still riding 100 miles, they're like, you're totally fine. And then I feel like they don't listen to me anymore. And I'm like, but I don't feel right. Like that was kind of demoralizing and would make me angry and sad. And it's like, that's not something that I can change. But if I can change my my mentality and just embrace being slow and just, hey, I'm outside. It doesn't matter how how fast I'm going. I mean, and that's pure. That's a, like a total ego thing. And I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of amazing athletes in Jackson. And if they're not slowing down yet, they will they will be in the future as they get 
older, but it's not something that I ever hear many conversations about. It's kind of always, you know, the radness and FKTs and a game that I've started playing with myself is like, how slow can I hike up the boot pack? It's no king. Mm. Well, you'll see more the slower you go. Yes. And so that's kind of like those, like the Ladakh trip that did help my outlook on on this reduced speed. I mean, I kind of, it feels stupid complaining, complaining about it, but it is, I mean, for like all of the cancer treatments, I mean, they absolutely sucked, but I would say it's been, you know, the seven and a half years since treatment has ended. And like, there's not the concrete, like I did everything that they said to make myself well, but now there's still this, you know, thing going on and there's no longer a definite like plan for it or they're not even like I can't even be told what it is that's wrong with me. So I'm working on the mental, mental and emotional part. I think you'll be there. I hope so. I'm getting I'm getting better. I think we're all getting better if we put the intention into it. I mean be I think being aware of it and then being open with others about you know, your struggle and whatever's going on with you, I think that is super important as mm-hmm. as well. Certainly. That's that's so true. Well, where's your next adventure to? Um, so my my next adventure is to East Timor, which uh where has, is that? It is about an hour and a half flight north of Darwin, Australia. So far northern Australia. And it is an island, the western half of which is part of Indonesia. And then East Timor itself has only been a country since 2002, which makes it pretty interesting. And I'm going with a good friend who speaks Portuguese. And this is the last Portuguese-speaking country in the world that he has yet to visit. And then I will be there during a uh, full solar eclipse. I missed the eclipse here in 2017 on purpose. I thought it was going to be such a junk show. I was like, I'm just going to get out of get out of town and my husband and I were backpacking in Greenland but then I came home and it wasn't a junk show and like all of my friends who were around for it was like oh my god it was like such a cool experience so now I kind of want to experience a full solar eclipse so I also get to do that in East Timor and then the scuba diving there is really good well I'm very happy to hear that you are still going after adventures and that you will get to experience a full solar eclipse i got to experience it i would say what what how would you describe it in in a in several different ways environmentally it was remarkable to feel the drastic change in temperature celebratory wise it was my birthday (laughs) wow what a cool gift for the universe to give you it was it was (laughs) and then emotionally my kids were young and Lewis, my oldest, he was at the age where they were talking about it in class. I don't think William, they were talking about it much, but we camped out at a friend's house. We were over at the McDermott's and so we had unobstructed views and we camped out. And then that morning we were there, but to hear Lewis and the other kids, their excitement of the experience, because they had been talking about it, learning about it in preschool. Mm-hmm was emotionally rewarding to be there. And then 
also to be there with William and Laura and, and other close friends who I've known for so long, there, there's that connection that we shared. So there's several different ways to describe it. I'm, yeah. I'm glad we, we got to experience it. And I look forward to hearing about your experience. Yeah. I mean, like now, I mean, going back to like body temperature and MS, like I actually don't do well in the heat. So, you know, and an island in the South Pacific is isn't like normally where I would pick to go. My friend Jeremy, like the Portuguese speaker, he really wanted to go there and he knows that I'm always up for like a random travel experience. I'm like, where do you need me, me to be when? So it, it would have been cool to experience in Jackson, but East Timor, it should be still pretty cool. I think it'll be pretty cool for sure. Yeah. Well, Dina, I so appreciate you sharing yourself today and your experiences. If people wanted to reach out or learn more about the, the stuff that you've written, do you have a, a website that people could track and read some of the stuff and follow you? I do. It is dinamishev.com, D-I-N-A-M-I-S-H-E-V.com. And I'm pretty good about updating that with stories, but also just Googling Dina Mishev, the most common name. So you can find a lot of my stories too, just by Googling me. Our old friend, Google. <laughs> Our old friend, Google. And then of course, people can yeah. just pick up an issue of Jackson Hole Magazine, which I'm the editor That's of, right. and read some stories in there. There you go. Can we find you on microfiche? <laughs> yeah, Probably not. Know. That would actually be pretty amazing. Is. is there a microfiche machine in town still? I bet you the News and Guide has one from those old, old, unless they've digitized all their old stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, Jackson Hole Magazine is a Teton Media Works thing, but I, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to email Kevin and ask. Yeah, we'll find out. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'll let you get back to your day, Dina. Thank you. you so much for your time. And you're a remarkable, lovely person who inspires people and brings great beauty to the world. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. You got it. See you soon. Bye. To learn more about Dina and her life full of adventure, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 226. Get out there and share this podcast with friends and family, neighbors, and your local coffee shop, Barista. Many thanks to everybody who helps keep this podcast going. My wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and Willie. Willie just turned seven. Woohoo! And my editor and marketing director, Michael Morey. I appreciate you sharing your time with me today, everyone. Cheers till next week when I see you right here, back for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.